it's a tough topic on this week's episode, but I want to start off with one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite movies, Lars and the Real Girl. Um, if you don't know the movie, the, I'll just play the scene, but this guy who's obviously got some, some mental tics falls in love with an adult play doll. Um, and I say play doll, but you know what I'm talking about. And it's one of the most unique movie scripts out there. Well, he falls in love with this girl and the whole community falls in love with this girl too. Even though she's fake, he doesn't know it. Everyone's in love with him though. He, you know, he thinks it's, oh, they like his girlfriend or whatever. So she gets sick and there's this scene where these old ladies come over to the house and they have something amazing to say. We sent Gus and Karen to the movies. They didn't want to leave you two. No, I'm glad that they... I'm glad they left. I feel terrible that all this is happening so close to the baby coming. And that's how life is, Lars. Everything at once. We brought casseroles. Thank you. Um, is there something that I should be doing right now? No, dear. You eat. We came over to sit. That's what people do when tragedy strikes. They come over and sit. Don't you feel a little better? I don't know. I always remember that scene and just thought to myself, man, that's that's just that's great. They just come over and sit. Mm-hmm. They don't say anything. Yeah, that's how you. That's how you grieve. Everyone, I think, a lot of people. We want to fix things. Uh, we want to troubleshoot. We want to help yeah. people. And I think it comes off a lot of times trite or cheap. We have comments about where their loved one is or in a better place. And uh, from what I read online, that's the absolute worst thing you you can tell somebody. Um, the best thing you can be is yeah. to just suffer with them, just to be in it with them, just to sit. And I think that's awesome. That's a that's yeah. probably what a lot of people would say is the right thing to do. Welcome to Don't Feed the Trolls, where most of the time we're trying to be inspiring and pretty lighthearted. But on this week's episode, uh, we tackle the harder things in life. Today, we're going to talk about loss, extreme loss, what it means to lose something, how to respond, and where to go next. Um, part of this week's episode was inspired by an email we got, uh, Matt, a couple weeks ago, asking us to talk about the inner troll of grief. You want to read that? Sure. Yeah, this is from Amanda. Hey, guys, I'd like to request your insights in losing loved ones and the inner trolls that arise in the wake of that loss. You know, the way your mind will eat away at your heart, saying, you could have done more. You could have been more present. I've really had a hard time coping with the lives I've lost from my life in the last few years. Hmm. I find my inner trolls really rear their ugly heads when I'm feeling particularly nostalgic or missing my lost loved ones. Hmm. Have you guys had this unfortunate experience? What advice can you lend a heavy heart? I find death can be so polarizing and many people can't discuss it. So I understand if this might be too heavy to address on a podcast, but I certainly hope you'll consider it. I think it would do me and many of your other listeners a world of good. All my best, Amanda. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Nate. And we want to welcome you to Don't Feed the Trolls. A podcast where we discuss trending topics, art, and culture. Through the lens of our experiences touring the world and creating art vocationally. We hope to bring topics out of the minefield of the comments sections. And into the sphere of reasonable dialogue. Thank you for listening. Let's just jump right into this week's episode because uh, our guest is Tyson Motzenbacher. Um, On your website, it says, in 2013, after the death of your mother, you walked uh, the West Coast in memory of her. And instead of us trying to talk about what it means to lose somebody and try to make up, uh, you know, just a podcast about that, we thought we'd bring you on. Welcome, Tyson. Yeah, what's up, guys? Tyson, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how it relates to your new record and how you how you came about this music thing? This music thing. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, well, I, okay, so year, like when I graduated from college, I was supposed to go work in Portland, Oregon at this booking agency, and I thought that was what I was going to do with my life, was that I was going to be a booking agent. Hmm. Um, but I graduated in a bad year for the American economy. Um, basically, the, the booking agency went under like two weeks before I was supposed to start there. Um, so I just moved to California. I was like, if I, if I was like, if I'm not going to work a job that I like, I would, I would want to be somewhere that's nice to live. Hmm. And so I moved down here and then I, uh, um, I kind of like gave up, gave up music as a career. And I was, uh, basically a friend of mine gave me a check to make a record with about a year later. And then I was just hustling like really hard. I was just trying Hmm. to figure out how to find my way in the world. And I think that's like something that you know, that happens to everybody when you graduate from college, but, um, it happened really hard to me. And mm-hmm. I was, tr- I was just like, it's kind of touring really hard, like, uh, but su- like super shoestring style, you know, where you like show up, you show up in town and, yeah, um, and you just try to play for like five people and hopefully one of them buys your record sort of thing. That's how it used to be done. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially like, you know, I'm from Washington state and I think that especially, kind of that to the mentality there is like you just the way that i've described it before is that like in washington when i was starting to play music the way that you did it was that that, like there was a big sheet of drywall which is like the music business and you just threw yourself against the wall um until either you broke or the wall did (laughs) i could see that yep yeah so that's what i was doing um and my mom got sick with cancer while i was halfway through like kind of just Basically, I'd been like throwing myself against the drywall for two and a half years, and um, mm. I saw like a crack in the drywall, <laughs> like where it was. It was like, oh man, maybe this is gonna actually work someday. Um, mm. Mm. And right when I sensed the crack in the drywall was when she called me and told me that she was sick, and um, and so I was, you know, sort of faced with this uh, dilemma, which is do I stop throwing myself against this drywall and like be with my family in this time of hardship? Um, or do I just let my, let the last two years be for not basically, that was how I saw it at the time. Hmm. Um, and I basically cho- like in retrospect, I chose to basically to keep touring. I like didn't go home. Um, and you know, my mom was a, she would always call me and kind of be like, Hey, when are you going to come home? (laughs) And I was basically the way that I justified it to myself was that, um, I thought I basically told myself that she was going to get better or that it was going to take a really long time. Like, Oh yeah, maybe it'll get her, but it'll, it's not going to be for a long time. And this, and like the touring felt so immediate, you know, you know, I think all of us young musicians face at a times where we've, we've all missed important things. We've missed weddings. We've missed friends, uh, you know, parties, birthdays. Um, obviously any family event with our family, um, was missed and it creates this weird tension where your professional life's great, but your personal life is a complete wreck. Yeah. But when it comes down to a family member who's really sick, yeah, this is, uh, this isn't something I personally have ever experienced. The average, you know, the average musician is going to miss stuff, but sounds like you had a really tough decision to make. Early on in, in, a, in a touring musician's career, there's this moment that where I, I mean, for me, it felt like two years just went by like that, you know, because when everybody is working, you're sitting around in a van or on your sofa wondering what you're supposed to be doing. And then, and then on nights and weekends, when people are living their lives, you're working. And you're gone. And and to me, it feels like there's this incredible sense of waiting as a touring musician, especially early on, because you're just waiting in every sense of the word. You're waiting for something to work. You're waiting for money to start coming in. You're waiting for a time when you feel like you're not waiting. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, oh, man, everybody else just went on this trip to Lake Tahoe, and they were swimming, and I was in a van. And, like, you know, obviously you don't, project that your life's going to be like that forever like you're like someday i'm going to be able to go to lake tahoe also but for now (laughs) i can't because i have to be in this van and so yeah i think that like the way that you get through that like the coping mechanism is that you tell yourself that it is temporary 
Right. Right. <laughs> you tell yourself that like this, I am really slugging it out now because one day, you know, I'm going to be Bono or whatever, yeah. which I think is what most people tell themselves. <laughs> I, I never had the idea that I was going to be Bono, but I always sort of just didn't think about it. I was like, someday it'll be easier. I think there's something about touring too that that creates a, a sort of a psychosis of that 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 everything is temporary. That you're that any hardship is temporary. That if you have one bad night, it's rinse repeat. You can do it again in a different town, and you can have a great night the next night. Or if you make a mess mm. in a hotel room, you just leave. I mean, yeah, there definitely. are no there's no consequence for your actions, and I think a lot of people that's why start acting out and behaving strangely. Um, the road creates yeah. this sense that there is no permanence. There is no consequence. Everything is temporary. Totally. So Tyson, you're, you're on the road, you're away from your family and your mom is sick and you've kind of made the decision. I got to, I got to do this thing now. And I don't know, were you, were you putting it kind of to the back of your mind? It seems like you were making, um, uh, I don't know about justifications, but just kind of not wanting to deal with it or lead us down that path. I mean, I think more than anything, I was just kicking the can down the road. You know, I was like, okay, well, I can't come home, you know, in the summer for the family reunion because I got this really important thing. Um, And then there was always another really important thing, you know, and and then (laughs) eventually it would get to Christmas and they'd be like, oh, I'll come home for Christmas for whatever, like eight days. So that went that went along for a while where I was kind of just kicking the can down the road and and she had um we always just called it her numbers. I don't know what they actually were. There's like some sort of blood count. They were those were going up and down and you know up was bad and down was good. So it's this constant roller coaster of text messages of numbers are what where are the numbers and basically one day um she called me and she was she was like hey numbers are way up. And that had never happened before, you know, because basically, you know, it's just that it's just a matter of time with cancer before it figures out your plan <laughs> and then it just goes nuts. And so that it had figured out the plan, basically, and it was going nuts. And so she was like, hey, it's time to come home. And this was, that was the first time that she ever told me that, like, you are coming home. <laughs> no, no option. There's no option this time. Hmm. And so I did. And, and uh, that was when I that was like when it kind of when everything was fully realized was when I realized that she wasn't going to get better, it was when I realized that I had missed out. Like I had missed out on some of the most, like, I mean, in those, in those years, there was like two or three, three years there where she was really sick. And those were the golden years of her, of my mom. Like she was just killing it. You know, she was, she had this perspective that I had never encountered before. She had like this sage, like wisdom, which is, I think, something that you only get when you know that you're going to die. You know, it's like the end of the road is here and you have an eternal forward perspective and either an eternal or a zero forward perspective. And you have a kind of just a full bodied perspective of the past as well. And so basically I came home and, and uh, we thought it was going to be a few months. I canceled like eight months of gigs. I canceled everything from basically from September until like the following February or something. Uh, so have you ever read the the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? Uh, I haven't. It's no. a great book. I highly recommend it. I talk about it far too much on this podcast, but okay. He talks about um. There's studies been done where people are the moment that they're diagnosed with a terminal illness. There's a change that happens in their. There's a psychological shift that happens, and suddenly all the things they had to do tomorrow, that list of priorities that were kind of based in the ego shift and they enter what yeah what people call the self which is this broader bigger thing and the priorities dramatically change and right um you see a change because suddenly they're faced with mortality and uh, i just hearing you talk about your mom it it sounds like she just really embraced that shift and you know lived on a higher in like a higher plane of existence mm-hmm. What what did that look like? What kind of changes did you see in her? Or what, what side had she revealed in that? So one thing that she started to do that was really interesting is that she started to plan for our future. And that was kind of this incredible selflessness that I saw in her. Uh, like I remember I remember one time this the doctor decided that she needed oxygen because she was 
starting to have a hard time breathing. And so, um, this, you know, this woman came over and was rigging her up with the oxygen and she's, she's speaking like, she's talking like my mom is going to have oxygen for, you know, 20 years. Like when this, when these tanks go out, you're going to go get new tanks and make sure to await like every five or six months you need to grease this lever or whatever. Hmm. And and my mom knows that she's got a month left. So it's like she knows that she's never gonna replace the tanks. And mm. and she starts to she starts to completely shift where she, she this woman is there to do a job, right? She's there to teach she's been given the book of things to do. And my mom just completely shifted it all to where she wasn't talking about the oxygen tanks anymore. She was asking this woman about her family and her and her husband and, and eventually they get down to like my mom was a counselor, so she was always helping people through their problems. And it turned out that this woman was having problems in her marriage. And my mom starts talking about like cognitive spirals and the way that she sees things going wrong in in, in their marriage. And this woman leaves, and and I realized that like basically what you were saying, those menial day to day tasks, which are really a survival mechanism, right? They're like every day we have to do these things to in order to perpetuate ourselves down the road. Right. And then when there's no more road. Um, you, you no longer have the, the need to have those tasks and everything becomes from sort of an elevated perspective. Said I'd walk to San Francisco After everything was done I thought the noise and moving busy kept my mind from really knowing what was gone. When I Another thing that she did is she planned a she planned a bunch of surprises for my sister and I. Like she planted these uh, labeled boxes all over the house that were like pre-addressed and and postaged so that after she died my dad would find these boxes and put them in the mail and we would get packages from her like a year after she died ultimately what she said to me was she wrote me this long email when I decided to come home and she was like read the email before you come home and so I did and basically what it said is like hey you are a bad you do a bad job of processing through grief like you are bad at it <laughs> and I was like yeah that is uh, that is apparent to me and she said, you need to find a way to not avoid grief anymore. And that was, to me, was a, sort of a, that w- was a big one for, I think, in that, what we're talking about with menial tasks. Like, like a menial task is to avoid grief. Right. right? Like, it's like, you, you don't want to do it. Distract. Um, but, w- yeah. yeah, you get stuck there. And at the end of your life, it's like, man, what are the things that we really did in our lives? And ultimately, I think they are like joy and grief are like two of the big ones. Hmm. Um. And she was like, man, if you're avoiding these things, it is that you are just basically trashing your hotel room every night hmm. for the, your whole life, right? You're just moving on without ever having anything that is the river that is the narrative of our lives. So she told me, she said, hey, you're bad at, at processing grief. Come home. We're going to talk about it. So I was like, okay, came home. And she was like, yeah, you avoid grief. You have, she, said, she said, one thing that she said to me, she's like, you avoided me because I was associated with grief for you. She's like, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. But I say that to say that, like, hey, you will, in your quest to not feel sad, you are going to hurt people because people embody sad sometimes. Whoa. Um, and she said, you need to figure out a way to real. She, what her big tagline for me was that you have to lean into grief. You have to lean into it. So you read, you read a lot said, of Richard Rohr. Stupid. I like I do like Richard Rohr, and she did a lot. So oh, I'm okay. guessing that's probably one right, of his. Sorry, yeah. I'm just I'm just <laughs> hearing you the lean into grief thing, and I'm like, that sounds like yeah, Rohr big time. Well, Richard Rohr's whole thing is finding a way to be completely present in every moment, which is like yeah, which if it's grief, you got to be in the grief for sure. Yeah, I don't know. Hearing your mom spin it all is just very powerful. How she kind of puts it back on you, like hey, she's not the kind of mom who's going. How dare you not come here for me? 100%. You didn't come here for you. Exactly. You know what I mean? The typical response from a person who hasn't arrived there is just like, you didn't come 
for me. You didn't call me on my birthday. You didn't show right. up for my, you know, my special day. And she's like, look, I'm concerned about the rest of your life, right. Tyson. Right. This is this has nothing to do with me. And that's such a transcendence yes. of humanity. That's just, that's a really cool and powerful story. Yeah. So how did you move into grief? How did you address? Well, she told me to do something stupid. And that was, what, that was her words. She said, do something stupid. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> what does something stupid look like? And she said, just something irresponsible that'll put you in it. Wow. And, and I was like, what wisdom. I know. And I was like, well, okay, what does something irresponsible look like? Actually, this is funny because I think it was actually about a year afterwards. My sister got one of those boxes in the mail that I was telling you about. And in the box was a pair of my mom's old cycling shoes. My sister and my mom wore the same size shoes. And it was her, that's, those boxes were all full of riddles that we were supposed to figure out later. And my sister figured out that my mom was telling her to do something stupid, which was that she should ride her bike really far. So my sister rode her bike from Seattle to San Diego Whoa. with my mom's cycling shoes. Whoa. That's cool. Which was, this is how it all went. We got these riddles, like, like things where we realized what she was saying through the riddle later. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think there's one more box left. But yeah, I got all these weird riddles. So one of the ones she told me is, yeah, do something stupid. And so what I decided to do was that I decided to walk really far. Basically, my mom passed away on the day after her birthday. And then the week later, we did her memorial service. And then flew home on Sunday. And then on Monday, I left. So I walked out the front door of my house, um, which is in San Diego. And I just basically just kind of pointed it north. The first thing that I did, <laughs> this is the first big lesson, was that I had this romantic notion that I was going to go get a cup of coffee that morning. And so hmm. I was like, that'd be a nice way to start. Like, I'll wake up at five, I'll go get a cup of coffee, I'll go sit on the beach, and I'll have this time of sort of beginning the trip. Hmm. <laughs> and so I went to get a cup of coffee, and I realized that the coffee shop was an hour's walk out of the way. Oh, wow. And I didn't think about that. So... I walked an hour out of the way, and next thing I know, like my day is starting way later than I thought. And I, but I had this cold cup of coffee, and then I had to walk to the beach, so my co- coffee was all cold. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I was like, everything is not all. Everything is already not as I had expected. Yeah, which I think was her her plan. Yeah, so you knew you were gonna walk the whole distance. You had places you were gonna stay. Did you have it mapped out? I mean, I, I basically had no plan at all. Um, I think that like the one thing about me that I do know is I do I do avoid grief, but when I feel grief, I feel it pretty hard. Like when I let myself do it, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's like when I do feel it, I feel it really hard, and I'm gonna, you know, like when I was in college and my girlfriend broke up with me and started dating some other guy, I would like, I would like skateboard down these monster hills barefoot just because it was the only thing that could like make me feel better was that like the the idea that I could basically just like not have any more feet <laughs> it was like <laughs> the only thing that could make me feel better at the, in that moment and so like I think that my plan of walking was basically just a reckless desire to hopefully feel horrible hmm. I think that was kind of my plan was like if I feel horrible I won't feel as horrible I think that's what therapy is <laughs> yeah to- exactly yeah exactly um it's it maybe a little bit more i actually this was therapy but i didn't realize why you know well it's interesting because we like to feel sad we we go to we pay money and go sit in theaters and watch sad films it's a disconnected yeah. sad yeah but it's it's definitely an there's an appeal to the emotion especially when it's not our own grief we can kind of temporarily be a tourist into some other character's grief but Man, yeah, uh, sad sadness tourism. Yeah, yeah. Or or fear tourism, right? Yeah, it's like the Horror, yeah. yeah. You walked an hour out of your way, and then an hour back. Walked to the an beach, hour out of my then... way. I went to the beach. She she had written us letters. That was part of her preparing. So we had all these letters, and the letter that she wrote me was um, <laughs> basically what it said was uh, it said a lot of things, but um, uh, two things. The first thing that it said was that she knew she was going to be incapacitated and weird at the end of her life, like once the sickness kind of really took over. And she said, I'm, I'm sure that I would, will, will have been unable to thank you for your hard work in that time. And she's like, I know it was going to be a lot of work. 
So thank you now. Which was incredible because when she was really sick, you know, she wasn't there at all and she was, it was really hard. So she knew that that was going to be the case and thanked us about it. And then, um, I have actually, I haven't talked about this before, but she listed all of the things that she was proud of having accomplished in her life. So, you know, my mom rode her bicycle across the United States when she was 20 by herself and she rode a bike across Australia and she was a nurse and she got her PhD and she was all of these amazing things. She wrote two books, like incredible accomplishments, all the things that she did with my dad, like buying and selling houses and moving and, and, and all these different things that basically her, her life's legacy. And then she said the very end um, of the letter, which is ultimately the last thing that she ever said to me was that all of those things are not, are nothing compared with the two most beautiful things that I brought into the world, which is, you know, meeting my sister and I. And so I read that and the sun was just coming up over the Pacific ocean. And I had some of her ashes in this film container. So I put half of them there at this beach and then I started walking north, and I, I took this, I carried the second half of the ashes all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge, and then I put them there. So that was the first day. Um, I, I had pretty big eyes. I didn't think that walking was very hard. So I walked like 27 miles that day. <laughs> and when I got to the place that I, uh, my friend lived up at the top of San Diego. You, where I was you, walking you to. walked a marathon. I walked a marathon <laughs> with a backpack on concrete with bad shoes. I got there and I couldn't extend my legs all the way. It was like the most pain I've ever felt in my body. It was like <laughs> insane pain. I was like, that was the first day I was like, oh my gosh, I am in huge trouble because this is day one and I can't walk. So the second day I walked like five miles or something. And how many days did you budget before you wanted to go? Like 30 days? Kind of like days? didn't have anything. I canceled everything. Like I canceled everything that I had planned. Yeah, I mean, basically, I had no- I was because I was playing music full time at that time, which means that you know you're booked three months out or whatever. Um, I think I like had a plan to be home for Christmas, and it was October, so I had as much time as I needed. But um, how did the journey like? So that's the thing you you respond doing this. Uh, you respond to your mom's request to do something irresponsible. Mm-hmm. You cancel your plans and you start walking. This is a, a a mechanism to help you experience or be present with the grief. How does that occur on this journey? Does it? Do, do you feel like they say there's seven stages? Do you feel all of those different times, or do they all kind of happen at once? Is there any breakthrough? Like, how did that work out? So, if you live in California, you know the route that I walked, which is basically the coast. You know, it's the the Pacific Coast Highway. So every morning, you know, I mean, the thing that I didn't think of is, you know, it's it's one of the most beautiful places on earth, in my opinion, is the California coast. And they call it the California Camino, like Junipero Serra, who was the guy who kind of like made up, built all the missions on the California coast. He he used to walk it. Um, and that's why all the missions are 20 miles apart mm. up the California coast. And so I thought of it as being sort of this like spiritual uh, pilgrimage, you know, in my knowledge, nobody had done it in over 100 years. Um that was kind of the way that I accidentally planned it out. I had decided to walk it before I knew that, but then I learned that. I had expected it to be really, you know, pres- like, you know, just pristine and quiet and peaceful and beautiful. And really, it's just a highway. You know, it's just like, it's just kind of <laughs> shitty. Like, it's yeah. like there's, like, there's a bunch of people like driving super fast and loud and like throwing cigarette butts out their window. And, you know, so yeah, basically after like 11 a.m., not even, like after like 9.30 a.m., it's just horrible. It's dusty and bright and loud and hot and lame. So what, what time of year is this? It's in the fall. It's in October. So which is a really nice time because, um, you know, it's okay. foggy and beautiful. But um, yeah, so I would wake up as early as I could, which was, you know, before the sun came up and... From the hours of like, you know, 5.30 a.m. until whenever the cars started really coming. I, the only way that I know how to explain it now is that like, you know, in our in our minds, everything is sort of organized in, in boxes or categories. The, oh, this is probably wrong, but this is the way that I understand it. In times of grief, basically all those shelves just get rattled and all the boxes fall down. You have a hard time navigating through any kind of meaning because there's boxes on the floor. And so what I would do is every morning I would kind of go to the corner of my brain or whatever where I kept mom and I would find these boxes on the floor and I would kind of pick them up and I would look in the box and 
I would sort of study it and I would know what was in that box now. And then I would pick it up and put it back on the shelf. So like the first, I remember the first morning, the thing that I did was, um, the first thought that I had was, hey, your mom's never going to be at your wedding. I was like, okay, that's not going to happen. I always thought that that would happen, but it's not going to happen. You know, I would sort of walk along and I'd be like, okay, so this won't happen. Like I won't do the first dance with her. Okay. Um, she won't be there at my rehearsal dinner. Okay. So it's like all this one little category of my life, which is a stepping stone that I had not yet reached that she would miss. And I took all of those different things in that box and I looked at them and I picked them up and I was like, okay, that's lame. That's, that makes me feel sad that that won't happen. And then I took that box and I put it back on the shelf. And at least now, like when I'm at a wedding, for instance, I have already seen the the box. I've already sort of seen how that is going to translate for me and how that's sad. And basically every morning I would wake up really early and I would just pick a box and I would sort through it. Um, and I would make myself look at it. Like I would make myself really look at it um, and not pass over it, but just like hold it, hold the hot iron against my skin until I understood what it meant. And then uh, the cars would start coming, and I would just kind of look at my feet and try to get through it <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a really tough thing to experience. Are there any? Were there any points where you felt negative voices in your head? Um, you, we talk about the inner troll on this podcast a lot, so yeah. and how we can often just troll ourselves with our own regrets or our own lack of self worth. Was that an issue that came up for you when dealing with this? You know, I mean, there are those regrets that you have. And mine biggest one was that I did not prioritize my family, right? Like that was the big one is I did not prioritize them. Like I, I remember my mom was in my, was she was really sick in hospice and I, um, my, there was nobody else in the room and I walked up to her and I, and I said, Mom, I need you to tell me that I was a good son to you. Because I had been feeling like I was a bad son, and I, I was, right? I mean, especially in the end. She looked at me, and she said, she was like mm. kind of not really with it, and she said, you were very entertaining. And then she <laughs> winked at me. That's awesome. Yeah, it was her. She was making an entertainer pun. Like, yeah, you weren't here because you were off entertaining people, but I love you, and you were a good son. Um, and so that was really helpful, and that's something that I still, I still think about that, you know, it's like, I think that when someone is being selfish, it's easy to be selfish yourself, right? Like it becomes a defense mechanism. Like you're being selfish. So the only person looking after me is going to be me. Right. Yeah. That's like, that's like something that I've always, always learned is that like the people that are making the best in the world are forcing other people to think the way that they do. Hmm. So you're and talking about selflessness, like how that's contagious. Selflessness is, or or someone that's a good listener. It's like like if someone if someone's really listening to you, it just takes a matter of it just is a matter of time before you realize that you've been talking for an hour. You know, like like yeah, like oh my gosh, I just talked for an hour, yeah. and I and then you're and then that feels bad, and then you're forced to realize I just talked for an hour, and the reason that feels bad is because I am a bad listener. Well, please don't please please don't feel bad for talking. This is a podcast, and we really appreciate yeah. it when our guests <laughs> talk to us. So keep this is, keep it up. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do some talking. You know, it, it's funny because as you're yeah. as you're describing your mom, I'm thinking to myself how uh, recently becoming a parent in the last few years that there is this weird uh, shift that happens in in you. And I'm thinking about right. how I feel about my own children and how I kind of expect them to be selfish. I kind of expect my kids to be like I was, right. just kind of a little bit out of it, doing my own thing pursuing music, pursuing sports and stuff. And then one day, I hope, like you are describing now, they kind of get it. You know what I mean? Like, you're kind of signing up for this. Well, I'm in. I'm going to give to this human for the rest of my life, regardless if they recognize it or not. Or (laughs) I'm a bad person. Or bad parent, right? Yeah, that's so funny. But part of the deal of being a kid is you just don't get it. And when you become a father, you'll be like, oh my gosh. Wrapped up 
Are you writing songs on the road, or are you, or is this, or is the record halfway done, or where is the album in the process of you walking, and how does that contribute to you? I had a few songs done um, beforehand. Uh, one thing that I really didn't want to do was that, man, the best way to explain this is that I, I feel like up until that point in my career, the the goal of the audience, I had I had this perspective that like as a as an artist as a performer. Your job is to get a bunch of people in a room so that they can serve you, right? They can bring you joy. That you get them in the room. Their job is now to listen to you, to love you, to clap for you, to buy your merchandise, and then uh, to tweet nice things to you. (laughs) And and as long as you can get those people and trick the people into the room, and then they can serve you, and then you basically just want more and more people in that room so that you can be supported more and more and served more and more. (laughs) <laughs> that well, first of all, I realized that that was my perspective, and then it kind of like is a self apparently wrong. I realized that it was that was not the case. Like that, the goal of the performer is to serve society, right? In whatever capacity that is. If it's a, if it's a fun rock and roll band, your job is to give people a night off, right? And if you're someone that's writing, uh, you know, introspective sad acoustic guy songs like I was at the time and still do. My job is to offer people a window into another place where they can, where they can have um, an experience that makes them feel human. Right. Right. And then, and then come back into the world, ultimately having a better perspective of that words and feelings and emotions for their grief that they might not otherwise communicate. Exactly. Yeah. You're doing, you're doing what your mom's doing. You know, you're flipping it around making it about others yeah and i I think that i I needed to realize that that was the goal like the goal is to be a servant of your audience um and so i didn't want the record to be a therapy for myself that was something that i realized a little bit after and when i was walking i was like if i'm going to bring songs into the world again which maybe i will and maybe i won't i don't want them to be i think the record i made the first ep that i made was right when she got sick and it's just, it is just therapy for me. It's just like, it is me laying it out on the table in explicit terms that make nobody feel good <laughs> except for me having put them out there. Right. Right. Like that was the only thing that it served other people for. And, and when I was walking, I was like, man, okay, my mom was serving other people through her grief because grief and joy are two of the great human experiences. Right. Like those are not, those are like, to be human means to experience grief, and that is ultimately one of the only things that really unifies us. Those are the things, yeah, that shape us. Nate, Nate was just talking about how having kids helps you realize or understand self-sacrificial love. Well, that's a joy teaching you. But you can also right. learn, like as, as you have, Tyson, through grief, what that looks like. And exactly. Those, those massive moments are the moments that teach us and, and help us grow. They help us grow, and I think they, you know, hopefully they also bring us together. You know, like like that was something that I realized when I was, when I was walking was that like, you know, the the kid, the the guy, the the guy who has eight kids in a hut in Kenya, knows how it feels to love someone who doesn't love him back the same as Donald Trump knows, right? <laughs> like, like that right. is something that that we are all universally mm. feeling. We all mm. know what it feels like to lose something we didn't think we were going to lose and did not want to lose. Like that's something that we all know. And that is ultimately what brings us together is hopefully when we can see ourselves in other people. And that was like something that I, I realized that I wanted was that I didn't want to be a rock star, really. <laughs> I wanted to be someone that was making the world better by bringing them together. And so when I was walking, I was thinking about that a lot. I was thinking about my mom's legacy. I was thinking about some of the things that divide us. I was thinking about faith a lot and the role of the role of God in that. And like, anyway, I ended up writing a lot of the record while I was walking. It was, it wasn't like I was sitting there singing, although sometimes I was, I got pretty bored. Um, (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. But, uh, I was, I was definitely like formulating all of the major themes of the record for sure. And a lot of the songs kind of came directly out of that time, man. I'm just sitting here thinking about this going, you you kind of stumbled upon a really huge nugget of how to enjoy this whole music business and being in a band. Like, I definitely erred on the side of the crowd was there to serve me. Totally. Even though I wasn't naturally a very cocky kind of person and I didn't really like the attentions, 
it still mm-hmm. felt like at the end of the at the end of the night, like very few times that I see everybody in the crowd. You know, yeah. right? And the numbers meant was I a success or was I a failure tonight? Gosh, hundred percent. Did we do well at merch? Did the how many tickets did we sell? Because this is my self worth at stake. Yep, exactly. Well, I'm just exactly. relating. I'm not saying that's that's what your your experience is, Nate. I'm saying oh, no. I was there. Yeah. I was there too. No, I think no. We feel you. We're we're all we're all in this agreement here. But man, I mean, so how do you do that on stage? How do you make it about everybody else instead of yourself? One thing that, and that's a great question, man. That's that's the you know I think that that is a, a lifelong goal. One thing that I do think about a lot is um, <laughs> this old this old uh, like probably a guy who's in his 80s who was a songwriter from. Um, from Nashville one time, he told me that every night when he, before he walks out on stage, he asks himself what the people, what the people need. And wow. the greatest example that he told me was, and I, I thought this was so beautiful, but he was playing at a summer camp. This is a guy in his, like in his late seventies, early eighties, and he still plays at summer camps and stuff just cause he loves it. And he said that he played a concert on the last night of summer camp. And he, he asked himself that question. What did these What did these kids need? And the answer was that they needed sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and so he walked out on stage and he told all the kids to lay down. And then he just played. He said he told them to close their eyes. And then he sang like four songs and everybody fell asleep. And then he played his concert to a sleeping crowd of high school kids. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like, I was like, man, um, you know, I've never obviously gone that far. But how about how about that, man? Like this last, I just finished a tour like two days ago, and. Um, the thing that was really on my mind was the shooting in Orlando and how that is such a divisive has been such a divisive power. Mm. And the thing that I talked about then was kind of my process through that in finding that we were not on the verge of flames, basically. You know, that was that was what I tried to do. Was to I had a moment where I would talk. For, I talked for about five or six minutes about. You know, there are these huge moments in our world that make us feel like we are on the verge of destruction um, in one way or another, some being worse than other ways. but Or bluntly put, that there is no hope. There is no hope. That's exactly right. And and what I said is that I, I told this little story about watching this mom drive really aggressively through town, and I realized that she was probably going somewhere good. Wow. She was probably going to pick up her kid from soccer practice. And that ultimately we are all doing our best. And <laughs> I talked about how like the fact that there are, you know, three, four, five, six million dads in America that are worried about paying for their kids' college and that they're just saving money every month to pay for their kids' college and their kids don't know and their kids are str- and their kids don't care. And that that is, a, that is a good that when you put it all together, it's a, a huge good. And then you take that on all these small these small things that are insignificant that float by us, like well, restoring old cars and rock bands going on tours and people kissing each other for the first time. And you take all these things and you put them in a pile and they are a wall too big for anything evil to overcome. And um, that, that was kind of where I found hope in that hard time. And, and that was something that I would have never done, I think, before. I wouldn't have cared. Right. I just I just would have wanted I wouldn't have cared about what it means and the fact that we're all scared together. I would have said, We're all scared together and the only thing making my week good is that there's a bunch of people looking at me in this room right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I could see why your mom's your hero, to be honest. And it says on your website that she's your hero because yeah. I think so few people out there have a parent who is intellectually eighty years ahead of them and knows how to yeah. <laughs> twist it you know what i'm saying most of us right. uh, as parents like right now my kids are crying in the background i'm distracted and i'm like gosh come on and i'm not there and, but <laughs> yeah. to be to have a mother who who in her in her own death is putting it back in your court that's just right. that, that's a gift man that's a gift that mm-hmm. i think 99 percent of humans just don't have that experience so she's your hero um, can you speak to that a little bit? That's kind of where I'm going with all this. Um, you say hero, is that just something that you feel like you have to say, or do you like 100%? Because it sounds like it's on my end. I'm just wondering. Sorry, that's not really a question. But No, no, that's a good, it's a good question. I, I, I think that you're supposed to say that about your parents, um, <laughs> especially one who has passed away. Yeah. 
um, you, you know, it's like you, to a certain degree, you have to, you have to raise them up. But, you know, I, th- I think that the way that you live is, uh, it says a lot about who you are, but the way that you die says a lot about who you are. Wow. Um, I think it says the most, actually, like the way that you die. And um, watching her, um, I mean, even like, like there was some life insurance money when she died. Like not very much. There was a little bit. And like watching her f- deal with money as she's dying. Like telling my sister and I, hey, you guys are going to get this many dollars and here's what I want you to do with it. <laughs> like, and me being like, oh, um, okay, I, w- I will do that. Um, and And like watching her plan her exodus from the world in a way that really made the world more beautiful. Like it, it made the world more beautiful. I think that she made the world more beautiful living in it mm. and she made the world more beautiful dying in it. Um, and that we were all, everyone that knew her and everyone that came in contact with her was ultimately elevated. They were forced to realize that they'd been talking for an hour, you know, and that wow, they weren't listening. And, I, I think that in so many ways, I would have been a net negative on the world hmm. if it had not been for her. Um, and that she was the only reason that if I leave something positive here, that I did. And it's because she forced me to, you know, that was like what, one thing that I say a lot about the end of my walk is that I didn't really change. Like nothing changed for me. I got to the end of it and I was like, okay, well now what am I going to do with my life? And am I going to play songs? And am I going to book a tour now? And ultimately it was nothing changed. The only thing that changed is that I realized where I was, where I was blowing it. Mm. I just saw it. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean that I wasn't blowing it there anymore. I just saw it better. There's a perspective shift as opposed to an actual life action shift. Yeah. It's not like a movie where at the end of the movie, the characters are, are now all completely different people it's like you're not different like change takes a long time but the step right. one is just seeing it and i think i mean i know that there's a lot of things that i don't see but no i love how you describe the net negative like we're all yeah. most of us are net negatives on the world you know what i mean like uh i i think about this podcast think about my career in music i'm thinking about all these episodes that we're talking about it's this constant theme in myself, like, man, I've been talking, and I haven't been listening. I started a podcast to talk, and the most I've ever listened <laughs> is probably on this show, just having yeah. to ask questions. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I've always taken more from the world than I've given back, and mm-hmm. maybe, I, maybe I grew up in an environment, like you were describing earlier, where if everyone's selfish, then we all get more selfish. You know what I right. mean? But, but, uh, you know what I mean? But your mom gives you this gift of... Hey, I'm gonna give you this, and maybe 20 years after I'm gone, you'll fully realize what that is. But here it is. Well, and I think that that's really that's the answer right there, man. Is that like most of us? I mean, the, the sort of like the greatest generation watching them all die was really interesting for people because they all would sit there and wonder what their life meant. And for most of them, it was a singularity, right? Like I worked in this one factory my whole life, so what does that mean? Hmm. And I think that like in order to really have an evaluation of whether or not you are a net positive or a net negative, normally that comes at the end of your life. Was I a net positive or a net negative? And that's sort of the big crisis of the end of your life. And um, usually the answer is I, I put kids into the world, which makes me a net positive. <laughs> <laughs> Reproduced my own. Uh, yeah. I, while I, when I leave, there'll be some replacements. There's something here, right? I've, right. Uh, I'm going to have this gravestone. I'm going to have, you know, I uh, I have these kids in the world, and I there's I have a name on a building or whatever, and those are my right. three things. Well, clearly putting kids into the world doesn't do anything. It's like <laughs> no, yeah. it, you're just adding to the chaos if you don't step back and realize what it means and what, it, what you're really doing. Because I, you know, there's right. articles all the time. Dude has five girlfriends and ten kids, you know, and... Uh, right. There's plenty of those dudes in the world who just screw girls, get them pregnant, and then abandon uh, their children. But, you know, I heard it said one time that your father is the first person in your life that willingly chooses you. Hmm. And I think so many men are so screwed up because their dad didn't choose them first. 
all those miles above I was only standing closer to the man I tried to lose along the way But if I'm being honest As if I'm being honest I would tell him that it's a So Tyson, I have a few uh, questions for um, just for people who are listening who, who might not have been through something similar um, or relate to something similar that you've been through. But um, I think at, at some point in, in people's lives, they do experience this. And um, But there's also people around us at any given time experiencing extreme grief. And um, we can be extremely harmful in how we respond to it. Um, or helpful, being uh, someone who's experienced this at a young age, uh, what's what are just some like worst things that people said to you, or <laughs> or some best things that people have said or done for you in this period? Can you conjure up any any memories and maybe give some folks some advice uh, if they have a loved one who's grieving? That's such a good question, man. I. I, the funny thing was that I was, I like in the the direct aftermath of my mom passing away. I was alone. I like avoided everybody. And I've I have a friend who's going through a divorce right now, and and he told me that people, whenever you go through something hard in your life, people seem like they're grieving for you, but they're really grieving for them. Right. And. Like the best example of that is like all of my friends' friends who can't go on double dates with him anymore, and that's what they're grieving. <laughs> wow, and and which I believe to be true. Like it's like obviously you could never say that, but it's like this is impacting my life. Like right. someone moves away, and that is impacting you, and you're you know mm. you're grieving for yourself. Like people are always grieving for themselves first, for their fun and their comfort over yeah. the the actual grief of. So anyway, what he was saying is that people's people's grieving process for themselves takes less time than your grieving process does. And so there's this there's these first like, you know, it's really like a few weeks. It's like three weeks where people are grieving your grief in how it affects them. Right. Mm. And then they are done grieving it because it's not that big of a deal to them. And so there's a certain amount of empathy that they can have. There's a certain amount of listening that they can do. But it's also a finite amount. Like, people can only care so much. And they can only listen so much. And uh, once that happens, you are alone. Like, as soon as people have grieved your loss, they are just waiting for you to get over it. Right, they can't be with you in it. What's that? They can't be with you. They can't grieve with you if they've overcome their grief yeah totally but isn't that innate isn't that innately selfish in, in a sense like there's something there's something to be said for those who can actually sit like we totally. said at the top of the show sit with those who are grieving and just be yeah i played a uh a, a, a movie clip from have you seen lars and the real girl yeah well i played the clip in the the beginning of the episode where the old ladies come over when his, you know, fake girlfriend's sick, and they say, "We just come over and sit." That's what we right. do. Yeah, <laughs> that's what people do. I, and so uh, you don't say anything. Sometimes you just kind of sit with people, and so that's kind of the I don't know. Do people sit with you, or stay with you, or just just play video games and just be in your life, or they have to say something? Nobody's better than that than like old church ladies. <laughs> <laughs> they know. They know. They've done some sitting through it, dude. <laughs> yeah. And they, they know. No, that's exactly right. I think that being present is huge. And one thing that I really loved was um, when people would come up to me and they would tell me a story about my mom that I didn't know. Like, they'd be like, one time, me and your mom were at the grocery store or whatever, and she threw, a, she threw an orange at me. And I was like, and we laughed about it. I was like, yeah. hey, that's cool, man. I didn't know that. And it feels like that's a new 
that is a new life of her that just came into my memory of her. And that's really beautiful. And now I have that. So mm-hmm. I think that like in, in losses, um, you know, some losses are, are, you can do that better for than others. But um, I think that, yeah, being present um, and just realizing that like any bad feeling that you have is really yours. You know, it's, that's, that's on, like if, if, if you are outside of the, of the grief, um, that you are, you are grieving through it to a, to an nth degree of what this other person is feeling. Mm. And that you need to, I think that you need to ask yourself that same question. Like, what does this person need right now? I mean, it just seems like the theme of all this is adding something, right? Mm. Yeah. It's adding something or taking something. And so when people go, oh, I'm just so bummed because now, now, now we can't go do something, you know, like you said, it's taking something. Or here's yeah. a here's a story that you haven't heard from your mom. You're adding something, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it seems like the temptation is to just to take, even in the worst time to take. I'm gonna take. Totally. Tyson, we talked a little bit about it. Needless to say, your record. Uh, what what's the title of your record for the listeners? Yeah, it's called Letters to Lost Loves, and it came out on Tooth and Nail Records this year. It did. And you are going to be, and this is all, I'm tying it together nicely as a host, I think, right now. You are yeah. going to be on tour with Nate's band, Sherwood, uh, yeah, down the really West cool Coast. It's a really cool band called really? Sherwood. <laughs> yeah. And it, it'll be uh, next month. What is it, like three weeks out? Something like that? It's coming fast, man. It's coming fast. Yeah, so July listeners, 13th. listeners on the West Coast, uh, go check out the dates. Um, yeah, you can check them out. Uh, at either Sherwood's Facebook page or Tyson Matzabacher's Facebook Facebook page. All they also have websites SherwoodMusic.net, and uh, go say hi to Tyson and Nate. They'll be they'll be hanging out together at shows. So uh, we will be. We want to we want to at least throw that in there. And uh, I've heard pieces of your record, and I think it's wonderful. So I I highly recommend people uh, check it out. And I'll be listening a little bit more definitely after this conversation man thanks so much for uh for being here with us dude thanks so much for having me on man it was a great time man i'm blown away dude i didn't know your story was so so wonderful um honestly uh just had a lot to add and a lot of things to just i don't know i mean because i listened to your record uh, well just to give a little listeners a little background tyson and i have some mutual friends so Mm -hmm. i heard a couple of your songs um and i liked him and normally i'm just like oh you know my friends friends are putting out art or whatever and half the time yeah. i'm just like you know what i mean but i, I was like oh yeah. this is great and so i called you up and said hey man you want to come on this tour um and even if you said you know no i was going to still try to get you on but um <laughs> but it's it yeah i mean i genuinely like your stuff i i genuinely think it's t- and it's cool to hear the story behind it all and kind of yeah where you you came from and how it shaped the songs and such. But man, dude, I, I kind of teared up a few times in this episode and that hasn't happened yet for me. Yeah. I, I'm glad we had the video turned off because I was kind of <laughs> choking up a few times too. Thanks oh, a lot, man. Tyson. Yeah, well, thank you. Guys. I, yeah, it's an awesome time. <laughs> well, you know, uh, here's a little factual, um, uh, a, little, a little stat. I don't know if you ever read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. Uh, I haven't read that one. I've read he, a couple of the other ones, yeah. It might have been in another one. I, I might be misquoting, but he said almost a third of our U.S. presidents had at least one parent die, a quarter by age 10, a third by age 15, and 45% by age 20. Whoa. And you're talking about how grief, grief and joy shape you, but grief is obviously a really powerful emotion that can shape you. It's a crazy stat that a lot of the most uh, successful or driven or focused or those kind of people that elevate in society have, have dealt with this at a very young age. Wow. So I don't know. That's probably such a terrible thing to tell you, but, uh, no, that's really fascinating. I, I'm going to have to read that one now. (laughs) It's good. The underdogs are not the underdogs. Right. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) But, uh, anyways, uh, thanks for your time, man. We really appreciate it. And we encourage everybody to go check out, uh, check out a show this, uh, July with Sherwood and and Tyson Matzenbacher. It's going to be a good time. I'll see you in a couple weeks, buddy. All right, man. All right. Take care, man. Talk to you guys soon. Later. All right.
Wow, that was awesome. That was Tyson Matzenbacher again, for those of you that are ADD like me and need to be told a million times what's going on. Um, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, add something. Add something. In every situation, add something. Try not to take something. But anyway, that's what I'm going to take from, away from this. I'm going to try to listen more and uh, hard to do on a podcast. But uh, if you want to support this show and... Um, help us to produce more content and keep going and inspire people. Help us out at patreon.com slash don't feed the trolls. Um, anything you can do would be awesome. And uh, check out the tour dates for uh, Sherwood, Tyson Matzenbacher, and Fialta coming up July 13th is the first show in Anaheim. And uh, send us an email if you want to tell us directly how you feel at don't email the trolls at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the show. See you next week. Thunder, show me what I